0: Well, good morning again. For those you who don't know me, my name is Rob Ribby, and I uh, live here in Three Lakes and blessed to work out at Honey Rock. And uh, also I'm excited about the opportunity to share God's Word this morning in Niall's absence. Uh, sermon notes were not included in your bulletin, but they are here, so the ushers are going to just walk up the aisle. And if you would like a chance to be able to jot down what we're talking about this morning just raise your hand I'll pass them down the aisle to you first slide yep uh well happy new year no I'm not incorrect uh today actually is the first day of Advent which is what we're going to talk about this morning uh and for the next uh four Sundays but uh the first day of Advent is actually the first day of the Christian year. Uh, We keep track with the calendar that starts with January 1 uh, in our country and around the world, but actually Christians, the church around the globe, follows a Christian year that starts with the season of Advent, which is a time of preparation and waiting for Christmas. Um, And so what I want to talk about this morning is actually the idea of waiting. There's a, as I started to think about it this week, I thought waiting's kind of a weird thing to actually think about, but we do it a lot. We do it a lot in our world. There's, there's a several categories in my scientific study of waiting, which was just in my brain and with my wife in the car driving to Thanksgiving. Um, First type of waiting is inconvenient waiting. It's the waiting uh, that is traffic jams, which we don't have too much up here in the North Woods. The waiting at traffic lights, which we also don't have too many of those, but if you go to the city, you end up sitting at those a lot. Lines. We wait in lines at stores, at banks, at restaurants, at movies, at sporting events, at the airport. Even Rhinelander TSA lines, not too long, but you go to Chicago, it's going to take you a while. When we were in uh, Israel, when you leave the country of Israel, it's a three hour security check. It takes forever. There's four different stations. You get interviewed by some guy. Your team gets split up to make sure your story's all aligned. It's really intense. But we wait in lines a lot. We go to appointments and we wait dentist, doctor. Hairdresser, DMV, lines, we wait. I love this one. Uh, Another type of inconvenient waiting is when we call customer service for some company or something because we have a need and it's really urgent. We're stuck and we're put on hold. And we wait and listen to pretty music in the background. Inconvenient waiting. Most of the time it doesn't bother us. But that's because we've been trained to wait. By our culture. Sometimes if it is really in a bad timing or whatever, we get angry, we get frustrated. The whole thing of road rage is just the whole thing of getting mad at somebody who got in our way. It slowed us down. So inconvenient waiting. First type of waiting thought about. The second one is fearful waiting. This is when you've gone to the doctor and there's a report and you're waiting for the report to come. And they say, oh, it'll be a few days. Does that mean one day or five days or seven days? And you're sitting there waiting. And every time the phone rings, your heart jumps because you're worried about something that the doctor might say. For students, it might be the report card waiting, which nowadays, because of it's online all the time, that's hardly the case. But in the old days, we had to wait for it to come in the mail. Maybe uh you've been pulled over by a policeman and there's that few seconds it takes him or her to get from the police car to your car. That's a very fearful waiting that lasts for a long time, hearts racing, all kinds of crazy stuff's going on in your gut. So there's fearful waiting. During this type of waiting, seconds feel like years, weeks feel like decades because we're afraid of the news we're going to get on the other side. The last type of waiting that uh, I thought about and came up with is what I call anticipatory waiting. Anticipatory waiting would be waiting that you're excited for. You're going on a big trip in six months, and you're counting the days. The last week or two up to the time you're going, you're packing, you're making sure your passport's there, you're making sure everything's in order, and you're excited Maybe it's vacation. For students, again, it's summer vacation or Christmas vacation or Thanksgiving vacation or spring vacation. It's it's on the calendar. You know it well in advance and you're excited for it to come. Other types of anticipatory waiting are for a baby being born. What happens there? Rooms get set up. Clothes get bought. Names get picked out conversations, ultrasounds, passed around the internet, or wedding dates. Another big anticipatory waiting. Once it's set, all these plans go into motion and all this effort and time is spent getting ready for the big day. Every minute is thought through and planned out. There's excitement and preparation and effort put in to getting ready for the big day. Well, Advent is a season of waiting for the coming of the Lord. Next slide, Jim. And the question that I want to ask this morning is how are you preparing for Christmas? How are you waiting for Christmas? Advent, um, as I said before, is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, Just in case you uh, didn't know, I did a little searching and study on the holiday of Christmas and where it came from. You know what? Christmas didn't become a holiday until about 300 A.D. And it was actually when the Romans basically made Christianity the, the religion of the culture, there was a big, huge pagan feast that lasted for 40 days, in December around the winter solstice. And it was like Mardi Gras on steroids. The culture was just completely crazy. And these are secular websites I'm reading on this. And when the Romans made Christianity the culture of the day, they said, we got to capture this time and turn it for good. And they turned winter solstice into Christmas and named it Christ's birth. It's very unlikely that Jesus was actually born on December 25th. It's more likely that He was born sometime in October. But the holiday was established to basically re-change a culture away from pagan in celebration around Christ. And then Advent came in. We already had Easter. Easter's been celebrated from the very first days of Christ. Easter was a big celebration, and this was kind of created to create another one to celebrate His coming. And so uh, Easter had lent to prepare for the Easter celebration. Forty days set aside to prepare and to get ready and to anticipate Easter and the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Advent was added to the Christmas thing to prepare for this incredible event of God coming to earth. So as I said, Advent launches the Christian year. And in the church around the globe where we celebrate the Christian year, there's a series of festivals and feasts, Christmas being the first one, Easter being the second one, but there's Epiphany, there's Lent, There's Pentecost, season of Pentecost, which celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit. And all of these different blocks of time are set aside so that we would remember and live through the life of Christ every year and relive the story. The Christian year is not a new invention. It goes all the way back to the people of Israel. people of Israel had festivals established by God, read Deuteronomy, where he said, Take this time, this time of year, every year. Take a week. Go to Jerusalem. Celebrate. And they celebrated things like the Ten Commandments coming down. Big celebration in spring. They celebrated Passover when God released them from Egypt. And they celebrated these things every year so that they would relive the story and the story would be fresh and be remembered. Well, the church calendar does that same thing for us. And that's the goal of Advent. So, the Advent theme that comes to us from the church is basically an expectant and joyful waiting. And there are two themes. The first theme is to celebrate the first coming of Christ. To celebrate, to relive the coming of Christ as a child. And at the same time, prepare ourselves for the second coming and to direct our hearts towards the second coming of Christ. So Advent, if celebrated and used appropriately, is a very powerful spiritual formation, heart-changing preparation process to get us ready for the first coming of Christ, Christmas, and re-celebrating that event and its significance and in the same time, get us excited for the return of Christ and focusing on the return of Christ. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to set up Advent, Advent for us as a church body. And then we'll be working on it the next few weeks as we go through the Advent season. Uh, and by doing to do that, I'm going to look at the first responders to Christ. And so we're going to be bouncing around between Matthew and Luke this morning, but before I go there, let me... Uh, Pray and commit this teaching time to the Lord. Father God, we thank You for Your church. We thank You that we are part of Your big church, Your global church around the world, that today is celebrating the season of Advent and is beginning to prepare for the celebration of Your coming to earth on Christmas Day. We are so grateful, Father God, beyond words, and we don't even fully comprehend what it means that You came down to live with us and to be with us and to save us through your death and resurrection. We just pray, Lord, that this Advent season and this time would help us prepare for that reality and to truly understand it in a new and fresh way such that we would live with hope and joy in a messy world and be a light to all those around us. So we commit this time to you, Lord. We commit this Advent season to you. In Jesus' name, amen so the first responders to christ these are the folks who were there uh in different ways when uh jesus came what i'd like to do is to look at how they responded in the moment of his advent as a way to help us get ready and think about how we should respond to the advent of christ when he comes on christmas So we're going to start with Mary. And if you want to go to Luke 1, uh, verse 26. I'm going to read uh, bits and pieces and chunks of each of these different stories this morning uh, to kind of give us the whole picture of what happened on Christmas. So verse 26, Luke 1 says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a to a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call Him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So Mary, a teenage Jewish girl, probably 14, 15 years old, pledged to be married. An angel shows up and speaks to her and it says here that she was troubled at these words. Well, I'd be disturbed, waked up in the middle of the night by an angel. But what I love, and, her, and I'm sure her mind's racing, how can this be that I'm going to have a child? I'm not married yet. Um, what about my marriage? What's this going to do? What's going to happen, me being pregnant and unmarried? I don't know what was going in her brain, but 50 jillion questions could be stirring, causing a great, what's this mean? But the thing that I love about Mary and that we all love about Mary is her words. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. So the first first responder to this whole Christmas story, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary, the mother of Jesus. These words sound very, very similar to me than Jesus' words to Jesus' prayer in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Take my life. And in this case, Mary is saying, whatever you want to do to my body whatever you want to do to my social status, whatever you want to do to my marriage, whatever you want to do, let it be done. I am your faithful servant. A 14-year-old girl. Amazing. Now let's look at Elizabeth. Elizabeth, uh, as we heard already from the angel is a relative of mary she is very old and uh she is the mother of john the baptist so beginning at verse 39 it says at that time mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of judea where she entered zachariah's home that's elizabeth's husband and greeted elizabeth look at these words this is awesome who has believed that the Lord will fulfill His promises to her. So the second first responder, Jim, is Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's response is joy and excitement. She is exuberant that the Messiah is in the womb of Mary. It's not about the baby that's in Elizabeth's womb which is a miracle in and of itself. And if we read the chapter before and Zachariah has an angel come and tell him about John and what John's role is going to be and that Elizabeth is going to have a baby, Um, there's just this incredible joy and exuberance that Mary has come and Mary carries the Son of God. I love that picture of joy. Now let's look at Joseph. Joseph, you've got to turn to Matthew 1. We're going to read starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And then he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph, it says here, is a righteous man. And Joseph, when a woman got pregnant out of marriage in those days, uh, that was, means she had committed adultery, which means she could be stoned to death and divorced and humiliated and shamed. That's what was due Mary in that culture at that time because she was pregnant out of wedlock. But Joseph, because he's a righteous man, planned to divorce her quietly and to not make a big deal of this and to try and protect Mary from that disgrace and maybe even death. And what I love about Joseph in this story is that here's a man who is obedient all the way through. He takes Mary as his wife. He gives Jesus the name Jesus as directed by the angel. A few weeks, months later, um, it's weeks actually, no, it would be months, when Jesus is born and Herod wants to kill Jesus, an angel says, go to Egypt, no small journey, through a really hot, deserty land. Remember, the people of Israel came from Egypt up to Israel. Took a while. He was saying, go walk that thing backwards. Get Jesus out of here because Herod wants to kill him. So he did that. Lived in Egypt for who knows how long, two, three years. Herod dies. Angel shows up. Says, now go back to Nazareth. Joseph packs everybody up, goes back to Nazareth. And that's about all we know about Joseph. Some sources say that Joseph died while Jesus was still young. But he disappears from the story. But the picture we see of Joseph is that he is obedient to God as the father of Jesus. He does exactly what God tells him to do every step along the way, knowing it's going to cost him greatly. From that moment on, this moment here where Joseph takes Mary on as his wife, Life is pretty much a struggle and a hardship. He has to move around all over the place and run from being killed. No chance to settle. Who knows what kind of disgrace Joseph had to take on because he took on this woman who was pregnant before marriage. And what he had to not say in public, it wasn't me, wasn't me. A righteous, obedient guy is critical to the story and is one of the first responders. Now let's look at the shepherds. For shepherds, you've got to go back to Luke 2. We're not going to read the whole story. We just heard it in the reading. But shepherds were complete outsiders. We were just blessed to be in Israel last month. And uh we saw these shepherds. They're called Bedouins. They basically live in the hill country outside the cities. Do not picture trees, green grass, lush forest, beautiful rivers, lakes everywhere. Picture desert. I don't know how sheep survive. There's like a little sprout here. And then there's another one a 100 feet away and you can't even see them unless you're standing over them. And these shepherds are wandering their sheep from little clump to little clump to little clump through a desert. It's nothing but rocks and sand and dirt and heat. Nothing. I've never seen anything like it. I can't imagine walking for 40 years through that. But this is where the shepherds live. They don't have homes. Nowadays, because Israel's getting built up, they're basically told, you got to stay in this area, and they're forced to be in confined space. But they just live in shacks and tents, and they just move around, even to this day. Complete outsiders, rough dudes. The angels come and announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And I, I think, you know, I'm going, why did God do that? Why not go to the temple and do something big there and let all the religious leaders see? Why not do angels over the city of Jerusalem where there's thousands of people? He goes out into the middle of nowhere and tells a small group of Bedouin, wilderness-living, smelly, rough sheepherders about the Messiah. Awesome. And what's their response? Let's look at verse 13-16. to 16. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared to the with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in heaven and on earth. Peace to those with whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them, the shepherds, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They hurried off. With great excitement, they took off. The thing I wonder is what did they do with the sheep? Because if you're moving a hundred sheep, you are not in a hurry anywhere. Did they just leave them? Did they have one dude stay behind? How'd they pick that guy? But they hurried off to find Jesus. Jesus. And then if you read the rest of that passage, they told the story of the angels to Mary and brought great, great joy to Mary and Joseph. It was an incredible event. So here you have the shepherds. Their first response? Excitement and enthusiastic rushing to see Jesus. Now let's look at the wise men. Matthew 2. Got to flip back. It's kind of fun when you uh, try to put the Christmas story together to read Matthew 1 through 3 and then read Luke 1 and 2 and 3 and try and put them together in chronological order because you get all these different pieces that are different between the two Gospels and uh, that's why we have to flip back and forth. But Matthew 2, the wise men, we heard about them a little bit this morning. These wise men um, were likely pagan, philosopher, educator type people who studied religions of the area they lived in babylon it's assumed 800 miles from bethlehem and jerusalem and israel 800 miles again same territory i just was telling you about desert dirt uh far away and these guys are over there studying and they study the stars and the sun the movement of all that stuff because they're astrologers and the gods are the gods of the heaven and the stars and the dirt and all that stuff and they got all this All these religions swirling around and all these gods swirling around, all these philosophies swirling around. They're studying the stars to try and figure it all out. They're wise men. Well, this incredible astrological event happens where there's this big, bright star and there's all kinds of theories that it's three comets converge at the same time and it's never happened since and will never happen again. So scientists are trying to figure out what the star was and there's all these theories. Well, these guys saw it and they said, this is a big event. One of these books talks about it and they go and they study and they find the prophecy that a star is going to announce the coming of the Savior King. And they say, this is that star that's talked about right here. So they pack up and they travel 800 miles across the desert, with camels, to see this king. To find out what this star is announcing, because the star is so significant to them that they got to go find out if there's a king underneath that star. Well, you can gather from this story, and from the timing of all this, that the wise men were not at the manger. You guys get that? I mean, they, they weren't there. They couldn't have been there. The star came. It took them several months to travel. So if you read even in the passage, it says the wise men came to the home where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were. So they're not at the stable, at the manger anymore. They're now in a home somewhere. They come and they see them. So... The wise men, let's look at chapter 2, 10, verses 10 through 12, said, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here you have people that are studied, scholars, that see this star, that are overjoyed, that travel a long distance to see this king. They were spending their life studying and thinking, and they noticed the moment and took off as soon as it happened wise men the next person is Herod every story's got to have a bad guy right Herod is a brilliant king Uh, part of our time in Israel we went to four different palaces that Herod created he built cities he built these big huge king complexes out in the middle of the desert and figured out how to get water to them. the guy was truly brilliant but he was mad when this Jesus king guy was coming because he was going to threaten him Herod was the type of guy that when his son was threatening or even posing a threat at all to take over his kingship Herod had him killed you don't mess with Herod and so here's this Herod guy that is troubled and angered by this and when the wise men don't come back what's he do? He kills every boy under two years old in Bethlehem. Every boy. Which we think of as a huge, m- m- large number of kids. It's probably 20 to 30, 40 kids because that was not a huge town and it's just the kids, boys under two years old. But still, if it's 40 boys in a small town of a couple thousand people, imagine Three Lakes, Eagle River area, loses 40 boys under two in one night, it would be kind of a serious deal. So that's Herod's response. Anger, jealous rage, fear, insecurity. There are people that have that response to Jesus' arrival in the world. The last person that I want to talk about is Simeon. So now we go to Luke 2, uh, verses 21. This guy is a hero. This guy is only mentioned in these eight so verses in all of Scripture. Now, there was, I'm beginning at verse 25. Oh, I'll set it up and say. Another part of Joseph's obedience is that on the eighth day, Jewish boy had to be circumcised at the temple. The temple and Bethlehem are about 20 miles away from each other. Bethlehem's on a high mountain. It's not an easy journey. Doesn't matter. Joseph takes Jesus to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, just like he's supposed to. Faithful, righteous man. So they arrive at the temple, and here's the story. Verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as You have promised, You may now dismiss Your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen Your salvation, which You have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory for Your people Israel. This man's been waiting his whole life to see the Messiah. The Jews pray even to this day, every day, that the Messiah would come. We went to uh, the temple, Temple Mount. It's not The temple's not there. And the Western Wall is what it's called, where you see uh, the Jewish people praying at the Western Wall 24 hours a day. And they pray. They're praying like this they're praying and they're often doing this 24 hours a day come messiah come lord restore peace to jerusalem bring your temple back day after day after day every day the same prayer come messiah come to this day right now 24 hours a day. Come, Messiah, come. Simeon is that kind of guy. He's praying that the Messiah would come. He knows the Old Testament prophets. He knows what they say. And he's praying, come, Messiah, come. And the Holy Spirit comes to him at some point in his life and says, you will not die until you see the Messiah. So the Lord leads him to go to the temple on that day, at that time when Jesus is being circumcised. And Simeon sees Jesus, sees Mother Mother Mary and Joseph, grabs the child, lifts him up to heaven, and praises God because his hopes and his expectations have been fulfilled. And he can now go to rest in peace knowing that the Savior has come. To save Israel and the Gentiles, verse 32. So Simeon is our last first responder. And so, my question for us this morning, next slide, Jim, is what is your response to the season of Advent? Are you going to be like Mary? Willing servant? Elizabeth? Joyful celebration? Joseph? Honorable obedience? Shepherds? Excited curiosity? The wise men? Diligent? Anticipation, Herod, anger, frustration, jealous rage, or Simeon, hopeful waiting, gratitude, praise. There's other options that aren't represented by any of the people of the story of how we should approach and can approach Advent. And I would even propose might be our tendencies in this culture. Advent is more about purchasing. So we're distracted from the real story. Maybe we're ambivalent. We don't really... Advent's nothing. It's just it's just a it's a time when we light some candles up here at the front of the church, and you only think about it on the Sunday morning when they light the candle, which we didn't even make a big deal of today. Complete indifference, distraction. What's your response to the season of Advent? What's your plan? What's your thought about what, how you might use this season to prepare for one of the two greatest days in the history of all mankind? Christmas Easter. A day when God came to earth in the form of a son, lived with us, walked among us, showed us how to live, died so that we as Gentiles, could have union with God and live forever with Him in eternity. That's a big deal. But it's not going to be a big deal if we just live Advent in a hurried, rush, distracted way. What will make Advent a powerful time for us and make Christmas the day that this is set aside to say this is when it happened, what will make Christmas significant is if we put the time into preparing for Christmas. As some of you know, I uh I do triathlons. It's my uh forties to old age. I try and keep in shape. And the you know, I think about this every once in a while. What what a stupid thing this is. You spend eleven months running at least five days a week, even in the winter, biking as soon as the snow leaves, four or five days a week, at least an hour a time, swimming as often as possible. Hundreds of hours that hundreds of miles clocked for I did one this year in Phillips. And it was for an hour, I did an hour and 25 minutes, it was a short one. So hundreds of hours of preparation for an hour and 25 minutes of race. But it is a blast. And when you cross that finish line, after putting all that time into it, and working your tail off, and running when you don't want to, and biking even when it hurts, and swimming when the water's cold, It's a blast. It's a rush. Because the preparation has prepared for the moment. Some folks here do marathons. Half marathons. Same deal. Exact same deal. Marathons make triathlons look like nothing. Monitor sleep. Aware of every joint and ache just to make sure it's not something permanent that's going to stop you from keep doing it. The birth of the child thing that I already mentioned. This is another one. When we know a child's coming, what do we do? We paint the room. We buy the clothes. We get the crib. We get it all set up. Every detail's thought through and planned out for months and months and months. And then the day comes. And it's a great thing. And I talked about the wedding already. Same deal. And I guess my point is that you get out of Christmas in its true, real, deep sense, what you put into it. You get out of Christmas what you put into it. And I think the wisdom of the church to establish a season of advent and say advent and say, You know what? It's going to take you a good thirty days of purposeful, diligent thinking and praying to be truly ready to get the most out of Christmas Day. And then they do the exact same thing for Easter and call it Lent. And it's a time of purposeful praying and thinking and reflecting on the significance of the season. Last slide, Jim. So what I would like to propose and challenge us as a body this morning to do is to think about Advent, the next 24 days, as a purposeful season of preparation to celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. And I think Simeon is a phenomenal example. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these wonderful people that we got to look at this morning. Pray, Lord Jesus, that You would use them as models in our lives over these next several weeks and that as we prepare for Christmas, that You would remind us of the significance and importance of this event so that we may not miss it, but truly truly welcome you into our lives once again as the living reigning present lord in jesus name amen